All right, <clears throat> get your Bibles out to Genesis chapter 14. Again, I apologize uh, for my, for my uh, throat. It is what it is, but uh, I've taken all the medicine I can take, so just bear with me. So we're going to look today at one of the deepest stories in the whole Bible. So if you're not a deep person, you're going to get like a five-minute break. You can just maybe make a grocery list, do something like that. Uh, I'll let you know when we're coming up and it's safe again. Uh, if you're a new Christian, don't let this bother you. Just grab the part that you do grab uh, once we come up, okay? So don't. there's just some background uh, that I want to cover just to show you the amazing nature of, of God himself. But I don't know, how many of you ever been to New York City? It's amazing. A lot of people have gone. I never ask if you were forced, but anyway, the first thing they tell you when you go to New York, and, and I love going. I love the sports. I love the food. My wife loves the shows, so I tolerate those to get to back to the food. Um, <clears throat> but the first thing they tell you is don't look like a tourist. Well, it doesn't matter how many times you go to New York. You get off that subway, and you're like... And you're not the only one. Half, the, half the, the people are doing the same thing. You know, they're going, man, that's 43 of Farmer Fred's barns. Look at that. That's crazy. Now, here's the deal. I'm the same at Walmart. <laughs> I go into Walmart, and let's say I figured out where the towels were. Well, they had a meeting last night. Somebody found out Joe was coming in to look for towels, so they moved them. So I am forever walking around in Walmart, same look. I just want crackers, for goodness sakes. And I have to read every sign. I never know where I'm at. Does anybody know what I'm saying? But invariably, with that look on my face of absolute stupidity on my face, people will come up to me and say, Sir, can you tell me where to find... Like, are you looking at this face, dude? I can't find the crackers, okay? I had a guy come up to me the other day. He said, do you know where I can find the wigs? I said, not off the top of my head. Man, I'm tired. I'm going to go home. All right. So <clears throat> we're going to talk today about a man named Melchizedek. Uh, if you've been around Christianity a while, you might have heard the name. Melchizedek gets mentioned three places in the Bible. He shows up out of nowhere, Genesis 14. Then he's in Psalm uh, 110, and then he's in Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 7. Okay, And everything we know about this guy <clears throat> is in those places. Um, I believe that he is God in the flesh. I believe that it's Jesus uh, 2,000 years before he was born as a baby, and I'm going to kind of play it that way, but I'll try to explain it, uh, because the name Melchizedek would not have been what he would have been called by Abraham. His name means king of righteousness and the king of peace, and he lives in Jerusalem. All right, does that sound familiar? All right, so let's read the text, then I'll, we'll go deep, then we'll come back up. So stand out of respect for the word. <clears throat> After Abraham returned from defeating Chedorlaomer, okay, so there's four kings that come out of Iran. No, we know is Iran. Four kings come into Israel and they wipe out five kings in Israel. 
and they take all their people captive, they take all their stuff captive, and they run away. <clears throat> the bad mistake they made was they took Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so Abraham is going to go rescue Lot. This won't be the last time Abraham will save Lot's backside. But Abraham gets his men, 318 men it says. They travel 170 miles from Hebron all the way up to Damascus, Syria to rescue Lot and his family. Abraham defeats these five kings and then he's on his way back home to Jerusalem. After Abraham returned from defeating Chenelaramur and the kings that were allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is <coughs> the king's valley. Now, that is not the king's valley in Egypt. This king's valley is the eastern side of Jerusalem. It's what we call the Kidron Valley. It is the valley that Jesus rode the donkey across to get into Jerusalem. Then out of nowhere, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. Salem means peace. Brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. King of Sodom said to Abraham, you give me my people back and you keep all the goods. You keep all the spoils for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, the God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And I've taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you. Abraham wants nothing connected to the king of Solomon. King of Sodom, give that some thought. Not even a thread or a thong of a sandal. <clears throat> so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. You can be seated. I'm not finished reading scripture yet, but you can be seated. So in Psalm 110, it comes up again. And the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a messianic psalm. This is Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is not going to be in the normal line of priest. What is the priestly line of Israel? Aaron. Right? You, Moses was the speaker, Aaron was the priest, Aaron's children became the priest. To this day, the leaders in Israel, the spiritual leaders, are from Aaron's line. But the Messiah, it says, will not be in the Aaronic line, but in the line of Melchizedek. Very interesting. Hebrews. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, and he was priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. And also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was that even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth 
of the plunder. Are you starting to see what I'm saying here? Who this Melchizedek was? Again, he wouldn't have been addressed by that name. He, <clears throat> Sir, king of peace, king of righteousness. He is without beginning, without end, and he has no genealogy. That doesn't fit a whole lot of us, does it? And he shows up out of nowhere. <clears throat> so I ask some more questions. These are the kind of questions you should ask. Where does God live? <clears throat> well, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. However, when God created man on the earth, God lived here. How do we know that? Well, didn't God go for walks in the garden with Adam and Eve? Yes? So God had taken on physical form <clears throat> to walk with Adam and Eve. So, all right, where does he live? The Bible tells us. God pitches his tent in what? The old city of Jerusalem. And his dwelling place is in Zion. <clears throat> so, everything in history about our salvation happens on that mountain. On that mountain is called the foundation stone. That's the stone where God created Adam. It's right, right outside that stone is where Cain killed his brother Abel. It's right there where Abraham will bring his son to sacrifice him. It's about a hundred yards away where Jesus will be crucified. But all of it takes place on top of one mountain. The mountain of Moriah or Mount Zion. Now you want to have a little more fun? A few years ago we actually found the temple of Melchizedek. There it is. <clears throat> it's in the city of David. Uh, it is, it's called Temple Zero, if you'd like to look it up. Uh, there's, there's one other called that in India, but this is called Temple Zero because it is the believed, believed to be the first place where God was ever worshipped. Now let me tell you, these grooves are all for blood. This is so when the sacrifice takes place, the blood could drain off into the water. But the reason this is significant, when Adam and Eve, you remember the story, um, they lie and they're covered in fig leaves. We covered all that, right? Remember the fig leaves? And then all of a sudden, they're covered in animal skins. Because God had made a sacrifice of an animal. I believe that this is the place where the sacrifice took place. This is, this is where the whole thing started. So <clears throat> we got all of this story playing out on top of itself. And Abraham runs into this man. Okay, so you can you can come up now if you're if you've been taking a nap. So <clears throat> Abraham comes back from this battle and as he's coming through the Kidron Valley, here's this guy named Melchizedek. And he comes out and he meets him <clears throat> with bread and wine. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to set up communion right now for the end of this. So Here's the way Abraham is. <clears throat> Abraham is exhausted. <clears throat> He's ridden a camel, a donkey. He's walked <clears throat> about, about 350 miles. He's fought a battle. He's got Lot back. <clears throat> he comes back with all the animals and all the stuff. Abraham's got to smell horrific. Look horrific. He's exhausted emotionally, physically, spiritually. And God meets him there in the valley. And some of you are here and you're thinking, 
Man, when it comes to communion, I always feel bad because I sit here with all these great saints taking communion. And the truth is, everybody here is broken, beaten down, exhausted, tired. And God said, you do communion so that you remember me. So that you remember I'm with you and I'm on your side and I'll refresh you. That's the point of communion. To remember what Jesus did, absolutely. And in this story, they're looking forward 2,000 years to the bread and the cup and how that's going to be the message of the cross. We're looking back at it 2,000 years, but it's the same story. It's the same story. It's about the fact that Jesus is going to save everybody from their sin, except Jesus is the one dealing the bread. Now you get the same story in 1 Corinthians 11, what story we call the Last Supper, right? They're celebrating the Passover. They're celebrating the night that the Jewish people came out of Egypt and the suffering and, and, and all they were going through. They're exhausted, but they were to take the Passover meal to remember that God was with them. So that's how it starts. God meets with Abraham to refresh him. And it's that picture of, of communion that we celebrate. But then there's a prayer. And this prayer is from God to Abraham. Says, don't miss this. Okay? And it's the third time I've read you this same prayer. I read it in Genesis 12. I read it in Genesis 13. Now we get in Genesis 14. He says, blessed are you, Abraham. You are blessed. And the Messiah will come through you. And your family's going to be blessed. And your family's going to be great on the earth. Okay? Same message that God spoke to him twice. Another reason that I think that it's Jesus speaking to him. But here's what I want you to think about. What would happen in our prayer lives if we took this approach? Because I can, and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. Please forgive me, but I'm going to say what I want to say. I can tell somebody's maturity level by their prayer request. Now, there is nothing wrong. Listen, I have leukemia. I hope you pray for me. All right? I want you to pray for me physically. However, that should not be my dominant focus. Because God knows I have leukemia. God and I talk about that. We're good. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But what would happen if my prayers were focused on blessing other people? What if like God's prayer, I said, God, would you bless my wife? Would you bless my husband? Would you bless my children? And not with stuff. God, would you bring spiritual blessing to the nation of Iran? What if we started speaking blessings instead of praying for a 95-year-old woman's toe that hurts? Do you see the difference? We seem so righteous when we write stuff. And again, fine, pray for grandma. I pray for my mother-in-law. I pray for my mother. There's nothing wrong with that. But the plan that God has is a whole lot bigger than that. The plan is for your neighbors to find Jesus. The plan is for your coworkers and your boss to find Jesus. So our prayers need to be big prayers of blessing. And that's what God prays. And I love it that God's the one that prays the prayer. It's not Abraham. <clears throat> Abraham's standing there exhausted. And <clears throat> they share the communion together. And then after they've eaten the bread and the wine, then God blesses him.
God pours out this comment on top of him. Acts 2.42 says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what? Prayer. The word of God, serving together, eating and having the Lord suffer together, but prayer is what anchored them together. And the reason is, it's because all it's all they really had. <clears throat> they, they didn't have the Bible the way we had it. They had parts of the Old Testament. But they really didn't have what we had. And so they were trusting God. So they got together and they prayed. They prayed for God to bless their ministry. For God to bless their conversations they were going to have with people. For God to protect them when they went out. What would happen if we began to pray prayers of blessing rather than just praying for people who are sick? Again, keep praying for people that are sick, but add to that a whole nother layer. And when I think about the disciples, you remember the night uh, when Jesus is arrested. <clears throat> he's out in the Garden of Gethsemane across the Kidron Valley. And he's praying. And he tells his disciples, stay here and pray. He comes back, what are they doing? Asleep. Comes back a second time. Sleeping. <clears throat> Third time, he said, are you still sleeping? He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. <clears throat> now, here's what's incredible about that story. Do you know what most of those guys did for a living? Anybody remember? They were fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John, they fished all night every night. They fished all night every night. Did you catch that? They fished all night, every night, because that's how they made their money. But they couldn't stay awake an hour to pray. Now, I can't imagine any of us have that problem, <clears throat> where we can stay up for basketball, football, baseball, uh, <clears throat> but we have a hard time spending time with God, have a hard time in the Word of God. Listen, it comes down to just sheer discipline. It comes down to simply saying, no, this is going to be God's time, and I'm going to make sure he gets the time that he deserves. <clears throat> and then we get to the third part, which is a little mind-bending. It says, out of nowhere, Abraham, after Abraham is blessed by God, he says, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything. And <clears throat> King of Sodom gets involved. He goes, no, you keep your junk. I don't want your junk. Because he wants no connection with that king of Sodom. Nobody's going to say that Jewish people were blessed by the king of Sodom. That wouldn't look good in history. Abraham knows that. So he's staying completely away from that. But Abraham gives Melchizedek 10%. Now, it's 550 years later before we get a commandment about tithing. So, where'd this come from? Apparently, it was built into the system. They already knew that God got 10% of everything. That was just part of the deal. Jesus talks about it. The prophets talk about it. And <clears throat> New Testament Christians get this so messed up. So let me just explain. So in the Old Testament, a Jewish person would have given 30%. Here's how it went. 10% went to the temple. That was to run the temple, to take care of the sacrifices, uh, to take care of the priests. That's sort of like what happens here at church. <clears throat> the second 10% went to poor people. It went to feed the hungry, to take care of widows, orphans, things like that. The third 10%, you saved up all year long. 
and you brought your whole family to Jerusalem and you had a one week celebration of God. You, I, the word blow doesn't seem right, but they would blow 10% of their income on one week <clears throat> so that the kids, the grandkids, their memories every year would be we get to go up to Jerusalem. It's that time again. We're going to have the sheep. We're going to have the cow. We're going to have the goat. This, this is going to be the celebration of the year. <coughs> so when people get worked up about 10%, Jewish people were given 30% a long time ago. And 10% is basically a statement saying, God, I trust you. The average American Christian gives less than 2%. I know that for a fact. But... The reason God sets this is so that we'll trust him. People say, well, I give 4%, I'm working my way up. And I'm like, well, that's great, because God said he would bless you when you give 10. Now, if you take a look at this, this is Malachi chapter 3. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me says the Lord Almighty, and see if I won't throw open the heavens and bless you more than you could ever imagine. God, it's the only place in the Bible God says, test me. He said, you put me first, you give me 10%, and you watch what I do with the 90% that's left. It's a challenge. And I will tell you, my family has been doing it now for, say I'm 60, 50 years. For 50 years, we have not missed a tithe. And am I rich? No. Am I taken care of? Absolutely. God is faithful to his word. But you got to find that out for yourself. I met with a, a church planner the other day. And I said, before I even go any further in this conversation, does your church tithe? And he said, no. He said, we see ourselves as the mission. I said, God will never bless your church until you give away 10%. When the church ties, then God will open the floodgates to bless that church. You're like, well, this is counterproductive. You're telling me to give away money that I don't have, that I can't afford. Yeah, because you're going to trust God and find out who he really is. It's one of the few ways you really, in our culture, you can really find out if you can trust God or not. And I encourage you to do it. <clears throat> I'm going to use this story. This is for Pastor Cord. <clears throat> he's, a, he's a Kobe Bryant fan. Kobe died tragically in a helicopter crash. <clears throat> but Kobe has one of the great quotes in sports history. Because uh, <clears throat> you see today these guys that make, you know, $100 trillion and they have a, you know, a pulled, a pulled pinky nail and they're out for like three weeks. And <clears throat> Kobe, Kobe would never sit out. No matter how bad he was hurt. And that's, that's a pretty good picture there. Um, and this is what he said. <clears throat> he said, somewhere there's a kid that has saved up for two or three years to get to come to his one Laker game to see Kobe Bryant play. And Kobe Bryant's not going to be sitting in the locker room crying because his arm hurts. That kid deserves to see it. Now, in the same way, when you and I tithe, there are kids that haven't heard the gospel yet. If you'd have been in here Friday night, this room was full, I mean full, of children. All right, they're here, they're all over this community. <clears throat> there's children, there's adults, there's people in this town, there's people moving to this town. When you give faithfully, you're saying, even if I'm hurt, I'm going to give because somebody else gets to hear about Jesus.
Let me finish with this. There's an unending list of stories about the Titanic, but I like it. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> they talk about, you read, the, if you're like me, I read stuff online. You got the first class menu, second class, third class. Then you got the steerage. That's where my family was. We were down the bottom. Um, but there was really only two classes on board. It was saved and unsaved. And once that ship hit the iceberg, that became very clear. It didn't matter whether you were John Jacob Astor who owned most of New York or you were the poorest guy on that boat. You were either saved or unsaved. And so today, I want you to know it's not about your money. It's not about your race. It's not about where you grew up, what side of the tracks you grew up on. None of that stuff matters. It only matters have you accepted Jesus. If you're watching online, you hit that button, I've decided. People will help you. If you're here, you come up front when we're finished. People will be here for you. But this is how John, old man John, he's in his 90s when he writes this. He says, he who has the Son of God, if you have Jesus, you have life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He didn't say, he who's in church. He who's religious. He said, if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. We want you to leave today with eternal life in your back pocket.